Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, February 20th, 2022. Right. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's kind of a nice number, right? Yeah, sure. Because it's 02022. Oh, fantastic. Or 2022. Yes, I don't know what that means in Morse code. It's probably not good. I'm surprised my mother didn't bring it up. She likes those uh, numbers. Really? Yeah. Yeah, She's on top of things. No question about it. Uh, All right. So we have various uh, things to talk about here with the. uh, No Olympics, though. You're not. I see you have no Olympics on your list. Well, it's done. You know, it's covered. It's national television. Everyone's seen what they saw. Lots of drama. uh, Yeah. Yeah, sure. But I don't think we have anything. uh, To add? Well, we do, but I think people have heard enough about that, don't you think? Uh, possibly, possibly. We'll see. We'll have to see what Listen, happens. Listen, some of it was what fun. What kind of fallout it was. Well, you you it was said all... fewer people are watching it. But yeah. It, but the viewership went up when there was all the drama about the... Uh, the Women's figure skating. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, because everybody knew. You know, that, first of all, that was taped, right? So people knew from earlier in the day that uh, every, all heck had broken loose. And uh, well, they tuned in to watch heck break loose. Uh, I guess that was Thursday night or so, and they, 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 that was really kind of uh, you know an S show, as we like to say in the business. Uh, the uh, you know the, the Russians didn't look too good in that situation. They had all these young teenagers in tears for in d- different reasons. It was uh, a total meltdown. It is funny. It, a, it, it's a cluster, funny. As just we like to say. you know, you it's this uh, whole big event with these you know masterful athletes yeah. at the top of their craft right and uh in the figure skating you've got these little girls with their uh stuffed animals right you, uh, you kind of worry about them you know yeah, yeah. The, they, whole, the whole are thing are they is, ready for this the whole thing's just odd you yeah know? and uh but they hats off to what they are able to do oh yeah but you know i, I actually mean, prefer the pairs and the uh ice dancing those people are usually a little bit older. Uh, it's not about particularly nice dancing. It's not about are they going to land that particular flip. It's about you know their style and their you know expressiveness and, and their rehearsed routine. So you're not sitting there on the edge of your seat going, are they going to slip? So much as you're saying, well, how interesting is this? And it's usually pretty interesting. And the music's pretty interesting. So quite apart from the competitive aspect, I, I enjoy watching that, honestly. Okay. Um, Oh, so, four more years. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing about it, I can see it every four years. It's not, if it was on every month, I wouldn't watch it. Unlike the NFL, where apparently the, the networks believe we don't get enough football, so there's going to be another league. Um, now, I remember growing up, there yeah. was ice skating competition on, right, right. you know, the weekend the, sports program. For the precise reason that I was suggesting that the, the networks would say we got great Olympics ratings. This is a winner. Let's uh, see what we can do we in terms of competition next week. I didn't. Uh, you, you may have, and, and they must have gotten some viewers. Uh, but uh, I think uh, at the end of the day, they decided not so much. Um, but, I, you know, I bet you can find it. I bet you can find it. That was, you know, a staple of wide world of sports. It was right, That's right. scanning the globe. Right. Uh, and they kind of pride themselves in finding things that might be described as esoteric. I mean, that was... You know what they were about finding sports that you wouldn't read about in your newspaper in, in faraway locales like you know Switzerland or Europe, so, you know, whatever. You would read about it in the newspaper, yeah, maybe no, no, not the kind of competitions you're talking about. Uh, you read about you the know, I, there are world championships, okay? World championships are still there are tough. big things. Yes, but there would, but there would be things. They would have competitions of a sort 
in the months after the Olympics or exhibitions to try to capitalize on, you know, people want to see Christy Yamaguchi one more time. It, that was a staple. They would do that kind of stuff for television. But, and maybe they will again. But uh, in any event, for me, once every four years, I'm good. I'm good. All right. Um, so there was an interesting article that a, f- a friend of ours sent me um, about encores. We've talked about encores, and that's the series that we subscribe to and have for many years, in which uh, at City Center, the encores group stages concert performances of three musicals every year, musicals that are not deemed likely to get a full commercial revival because they're not at that level of commercial appeal, but things that are older, that are deemed to be of some interest, some likely interest, and they put on a concert version. Uh, and and we enjoy it a great deal. Uh, and uh, consistently, they're, they're really good. We really enjoy yeah. them, even though so they're concert versions. Some of them were things that, I mean, it's not like they were unknown. No. They're like Pal Joey, you know. Right. But, uh, but Pal Joey's out of style by, right. by a long and, shot. And so, but they also went to the trouble to try to reconstruct exactly the original, you know, orchestrations. Right. Uh, and the original dialogue, et cetera, right. the original book, right. and to really go back and, and, you know, resurrect it. Exactly right. And then apparently that was not easy. I, I remember reading several times when we were sitting in city center in the playbill how hard it was to get the orchestrations for a particular musical because there wasn't an official repository of where do you put the uh, written score for this musical, where were the arrangements going to be kept. You had to go to the estates, you had to hunt the stuff down. And that was part of their mission, to, to figure it out. So that you could see, uh, Pal Jolie is a good example, a show that was first put on, I would guess, in the early 40s or something like that. Uh, some uh, 40, 50 years later, you could see the show recreated mm-hmm. in the way it probably appeared uh, you know, half a century earlier. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, there's a lot to that show. And, uh, and many times there are great surprises. Oh, and, yeah. Because you never heard of it. Right. You, and, you know, yeah. it's Rogers and Horn. I mean, yeah, there would be great stuff. And there would be some shows that we never heard of at all. Where Pal Joey and, and we, we Pal Joey, we knew. Rogers and Hart were pretty prominent. But right. there would be other things that we just wouldn't know. Right. We weren't old enough, to, mm-hmm. you know. And, um... You'd that, say, wow, it, great. And... But also, we'd never see them again, too. No, that's right. Not everything is... You know, it was sort of a a kind of a magical moment. There are actually recordings of, you know, I think a handful of those productions. But uh, a lot of them weren't uh, recorded. No, they didn't do Broadway. These revivals. And uh, so, but there were, you know, magical moments when you just had these... uh, Usually the people in them, uh, you know, there would be some household names Mm. and some people who were just... uh, Hardworking uh, Broadway well, performers. They were looking for uh, or, or a, young. a showcase. I mean, yeah. you know, you're probably thinking of the Rebecca Luca number that that uh, Sing for Your Supper. Uh, as much well, there as are recordings for that, but it, yeah. it you know, there. Well, what I'm saying is, yeah. it, it things would come together. It's like they put this thing right, this production together in, in a days. pretty short time. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the rehearsals, etc., and there would be a chemistry with these artists yeah. that could be amazing. And right. and uh, as we said, sometimes there were flops, like the like what? Well, never mind. Go on. Well, I, you know, not rare, not often. I mean, they're almost always very good. Not, nothing's hundred percent, right? But in any event, um, the article that that uh, caught 
uh, our eye uh, was this. It's an article by a fellow named... No, it caught your eye. Caught my yeah. eye. John McWhorter, who is uh, identified as a Columbia University linguist who explores how race and language shape our politics and culture. He, he writes a column uh, periodically for the Times. Um, and uh, he's kind of an interesting guy. He's talking about language. He's talking about race a lot of the time. Uh, this article is, yes, some musicals are unwoke. That's not a writ to rewrite them. And he is writing about uh, the uh, recent revival that we saw uh, at Encores of the Tap Dance Kid and what's going on there. And uh, he does quote some language that was in the program, uh, which says, um, you know, Encores has been successful in, you know, as a gorgeous archaeological site that is perfectly excavated in certain productions. So what's next? The question had always been there, but became the most urgent was, how do we decide when we give audiences a second look at a show? Most zero shows written before the 20th century have a worldview and politics that sit well with a contemporary viewer. So what is the criteria? I love that question. That's what it said in the playbill. Uh, and Water says, I'm not sure I do love that question. And what he goes on to say is that uh, what's happened, what Encores indicates in, in the playbill and in the production is that they're concerned, or they're focused at least, on choosing productions and sometimes editing productions so that they're consistent with a so, so, excuse me, certain social justice perspective. He quotes the creative director as saying, I'm excited to be bringing a practitioner's point of view as well as a social justice approach. Um, the director of Tap Dance Kid says, uh, we're expanding the definition of a hidden gem you have to speak to the audience sitting in the seats today. We're not creating museum pieces. Well, Warder says, what's wrong with museum pieces? <laughs> uh, that's what he loved about Encores. And frankly, that's what we love about Encores. Uh, we want to see it the way it was done then. It was a certain, obviously there was merit to it. These are productions that weren't terribly unsuccessful. They were somewhat successful, but they're period pieces. And you can watch a period piece in the same way you can watch an old movie and get a certain amount of it, appreciate what it has going for it. Sometimes things that you don't see in current presentations, but still recognize its limitations. That was all part of the experience yeah, of Encores. Yeah. We're constantly watching old movies that, right. uh, again, thrill and amaze and make, and make you laugh. And But but you're also sometimes saying, really? <laughs> you know, yeah, people really. did that? People, people thought that? People thought that was know? funny. That yeah. line uh, went I mean, over. We're not morons. You know, right. We're not sitting here saying, thinking... Uh, you know that uh, th that these movies sort of justify anything, right? Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, but they have but, their own merit. They have their own merit. They have a and lot going for them. We've enjoyed. Loses them something in the translation. I, you know, I can't. Uh, I can't really imagine. You know the um, the equivalent in terms of. Uh, Say paintings, you well, know, reworking well, paintings or sculptures, you know, to make well, they, they, they have that has been done. I understand okay? that's been done. So you have you have sculptures, uh, ancient Greek sculptures or whatever, completely in the nude, yeah. and there were at certain points um, there would be the fashion for uh, adding fig leaves, right. Okay, so that is that kind of thing, making right. it palatable right. uh, for the you know social context but of. Here's the something time. interesting because 
uh, he quotes a fellow named Jed Pearl. I don't know if you're familiar with Jed Pearl, who apparently is a prominent art critic mm-hmm. and focuses much on, on sculpture and art as, as theater. He has written a book uh, called Authority and Freedom, A Defense of the Arts. Uh, and his point is, um, as he explains, artistic works are properly, quote, the products of a process that stands apart from so much of our social, economic, and political life because they move us and excite us unlike anything else in our lives. If we approach them as conservative, black, or feminist, etc., we have failed to account for their freestanding value. Uh, There's that, but there's also, to the extent that any of these works reflect something of the social context of the time, you need to be able to see that social context, okay? And you can try to understand it on that basis. You can object to it or whatever, but to alter it... Well, to alter it because it fits with current society. So that fits into your social context. Right, that's the problem. Destroys the work of art. Yeah, and there are two problems with that in my mind. And, you know, I don't want to... You can look up a word or article, those who are listening to this. I'm sure you can find it somewhere in the Times. He goes into more detail about all this. Uh, But, uh, you know, what... Consistent with what Pearl is saying, you know, you don't really want to hone it in such a way that it fits with the current views on social mores and social values because you lose a lot of the value of what's going on. The the converse of that is that a a work of art that rates high, I'm I'm thinking of the Olympics now, the ice skating judging, rates high on on the technical merit, (laughs) on the social values aspect, but doesn't rate high on the artistic value aspect isn't really worth seeing, in my mm. mind. It doesn't really excite me to see, which is also, I think, part of what Warder's saying. You know, he, he's looking what's, what's engrossed him and what's engrossed us about the uh, uh, encore series and productions, and we enjoy seeing it because uh, it, it registers on an artistic level. Um, and you can't sort of replace that appeal by saying, yes, but I think now we've got something that does very well in terms of being consistent with total social, with current social values that that, that doesn't rescue it yeah i mean and it just doesn't make sense anyway it doesn't make sense in terms of the art but it doesn't make any sense that any kind of political social uh you know demographic body of any sort should be deciding what is good to look at that's right because that's a slippery slope exactly right you know yeah Yeah. i mean uh, you have uh Hitler deciding, you know, well, declaring things degenerate art. Yeah. That's obviously an extreme. So we're not, we're not comparing anything. It's an to extreme, Hitler, but, but it, it, you know, it just means that any. It, it alerts you that the idea that any political power could yeah. uh, decree things like that. Yeah, is a problem. Um, according to right. their own taste, yeah. whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden, yeah. um, that, that's just uh, right. so bizarre. Yeah. Well, that's, that's so beyond, that, beyond that, the I think, is what Pearl's saying. But I should say that the Pearl's thesis is expressed in his uh, 19, his book of this year um, is controversial. Not everybody feels that way. So uh, the whole thing's controversial. But bring it down to a very concrete level, Werder concludes he's not sure if he's interested in continuing to watch Encore's presentations because they're going to be committed in this way to an ulterior perspective. And, and frankly, 
I feel the same way. Right. It's, it's not yeah. that we disagree with the social values exactly. expressed. Exactly. Okay? That's right. It's because they're not... The way the tap dance kid was altered, right. it became a mishmash, an unwatchable mishmash. That's right. It was no longer What's a his... work of art. Right. Um, it, so... You know, it lost its value. Right. All right, we'll have to see. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Okay. So the, it's getting to something a little simpler. Um, we did both note that uh, in the so-called headliner column that the Sunday Times writes in the Arts and Leisure section, they wrote about Judy Collins, what she likes, you know, how she amuses herself, what she's reading, that sort of thing. And she, we did note, we couldn't help but note that she identifies PBS, Public Broadcasting System, and says, "quote." In terms of favorites, Professor T is a Belton series, which is now on PBS. It was our lunchtime television watching. It's very offbeat. That's a fabulous show. And I'll just let you say it. We agree 100%, right? Right. The, the best. I have no idea if I generally agree with uh, Judy Collins' taste in... In anything. Anything, but, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I feel good that a celebrity has endorsed. Yeah, yes, now it matters. And, uh, well, and she also liked Yellowstone, and now maybe we have to look at Yellowstone. So, we'll see. In our future. Well, I have a short uh, thing here, um, and it's just uh, from the international section of the New York Times. Uh, Hilltop Tribute to Thoughts, Deeds, and Eternal Rest. The London Dispatch. And uh, just an article by Megan uh, Specia saying about people going to the cemetery. People going, in this case, uh, the Highgate Cemetery, one of the magnificent seven uh, cemeteries in and around London, uh, Victorian cemeteries that, uh, you know, people are enjoying to go see. And, you know, that just brings, some, you know, cemeteries are just uh, a fascinating, great place to go. They, um, I, you know, I've never seen any cemeteries charging admission? No, I haven't. I don't think. No, um, the one we saw in uh, was it France or Paris? Italy? Yeah, the one with uh, Morrison is buried. Right, Paris. Yeah, okay. they, they did not charge admission. Okay, so if they don't charge admission, no one does. Uh, uh, That's what it might but be. But anyway, I mean, um, and uh, this uh, Highgate was, um, I guess. Um, Established in 1839, so you know that's before. I've said this before, uh, so maybe it's boring. That's before public parks. Right. So cemeteries were essentially a public park. These cemeteries came about because in urban areas, uh, church uh, graveyards were getting inc- totally overcrowded, right. and um, and they were kind of. Uh, in fact, they were so crowded, you, it was hard to find where your loved ones were buried. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, there was a move to uh, um, establish these commercial uh, cemeteries, and in the U.S., you uh, you get um, Mount Auburn up uh, outside of uh, Boston mm-hmm. in 1831, and then one of my personal favorites uh, on the north side of Philly, uh, Laurel Hill Cemetery in 1836. I mean, uh, Central Park isn't established till the late 1850s. Mm-hmm. So these are places where people could go and uh, be outside, get away from all the uh, congestion and um, 
what else did you know the the, the traffic the air the pollution whatever of the yeah. um city and at that time less crowded because and, and so and now it serves the same purpose now yeah. it's fun in terms of history you see famous people buried i like that uh but mainly i like the uh the monuments right. and really if you want to see interesting monuments you got to go to a cemetery that was established uh, in the 19th yeah, century right. once we get beyond once we turn into the 20th century um, most cemeteries have a definite lack of uh, interesting yeah, right. um, sculpture. Although, um, I guess uh, one of my other uh, favorite cemeteries is in Milan. And maybe because of World War One in Europe, um, you still, at the beginning of the 20th century, you still have um, some interesting sculpting going on in those monuments. But, uh, so yeah, every once in a while... Somebody says, let's go to the cemetery. It's uh, an interesting idea. All right. So there was an article in the Times that uh, we couldn't pass up about a, and this sounds unlikely, but it's uh, uh, about what's called Kaplan's Army Store in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, which closed. It was open for 100 years. It's sort of a, a place where, uh, you know, people bought uh, work, clothes. work clothes and, and things associated with work. Uh, and uh, gone through good times and bad times. And uh, it's time had come, apparently. But uh, the article quickly morphs into an homage to one of their big products, which is Carhartt. And Carhartt, uh, you remember Ormond going on about Carhartt. Yeah. Uh, Carhartt is... Work pants. Workwear. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Work pants, uh, work shirts, and the like. Heavy-duty uh, work clothes that apparently last forever uh, and almost seem to have a life of their own because they're so substantial and so thick and so stiff, at least initially, yeah. that you have to wear them in almost like they're a pair of boots, but they're with you the rest of your life. Is that a fair description? I think that is. Yeah. Yes. So we're never going to see you in those. I, I was thinking... I'm. Just the opposite, honestly. Uh, <laughs> it, first of all, but, you know... Uh, the he, kids he, love them. Well, it, that's a whole it's different very thing. popular. It's become trendy. It, it, they, well, that's why that's why the article. This article is being written by a kid. Yeah. Well, okay. they say just as Patagonia sells rock climbing jackets to bankers, Carhartt now sells locking pants to baristas. And uh, I, I, yeah, I guess that's true. What I, what I was looking at, they keep saying uh, duck. Duck was a word I kept saying. Uh, as duck being, cloth. Duck cloth. So I had to look up what duck cloth was. Uh, you obviously know. The way yeah, you say but if you've seen the Carhartt pants, you know what it is. I understand, but in words, how would you describe all right, all right. it? You I, know, you, let me give you the definition. You can't do it. You can't be reporting on these things that you don't I know anything at all. It's all weighty, right, all right. weighty woven no. canvas. The, right. The, 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 let, me, let me tell you something what? you don't know about duck cloth, all right? Do you know that duck cloth is related to duct tape? No, okay. I didn't know that. Here's why. It's called duct tape because it's named after duck cloth because the original duct tape was duck cloth with adhesive on the back of it. Well, that's very interesting. Okay, there okay. you go. Really, the only reason we're interested in Carhartt is because that's what Hazi wears. Hazi wears Hazi, our, uh, our grandson. Our eight-month-old has or whatever. A, an orange Carhartt. Um, that's their biggest selling hat. item, hats. And Woven hats. He's adorable. Unbelievable. Okay, move along, all right? All right. Uh, you know, you he don't... Was- he has two hats. He has two Carhartt hats. So he, he looks great in Carhartt. And his father has them too, and they look great right. together. Well, okay. it looks great on All right. Him. The kids love it. Okay. 
All right, I, I don't see you in, in the duck cloth pants. No, I guess not. I guess the time has passed for that. Not that I don't do that kind of work. Okay, in the uh, Wall Street Journal, there is an interesting article about colors. Okay, yeah. I can't. Um, you know, I can't, yeah, I love color. <laughs> Art history teacher, of course, I love color, um, but. Uh, it seems uh, well above my uh, pay grade to really understand how color works, you know. Um, light waves, that kind of thing. Yeah, light waves yeah. and all that thing. You I'm know, on, and, I'm on the top and of there's that. Yeah. there's color in terms of light. There's also color in terms of like material, like uh, uh, reflected light. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are even you know two different groups of the three primary colors. I mean, it's it's too much for but, me. But this it's too much about for me. I see. look at things and they look pretty. And I like certain colors better than others. But it turns out that, um, all right, so in general, our eyes are sensitive. There are cones in our eyes sensitive to three frequencies of light, okay? And so they, um, you know, so our, uh, you know, we, we sense the light. In different ways, right. and it turns into different colors, right. okay? okay. Um, three frequencies, all right? right? Uh, there are some people who are sensitive to more frequencies, right. maybe a fourth kind of cone, That's right. all right? So in general, most of us are trichromats, yeah. okay? But there may be tetrachromats. People see colors that we don't see. There yeah. are people out there who are seeing colors that we are not seeing. Right. Well, that's, that's which seems headline. very cool, very exciting. You know how they figured it out? I think it's it's ominous. Honestly. Do you know how they figured it out? How? Because by studying color blind people, yeah, who see fewer colors, yeah, okay, and uh, very often uh, the um, the offspring of somebody who's color blind, uh, not very often, but occasionally there is somebody who's color, who. The son or daughter, well, it's mostly daughters of a colorblind person, uh, can uh, have these extra cones and, this is, and see this more colors. Like a movie okay. Um, so anyway, I don't it's, a, this it's an article yeah. about all the details of trying to do this research and figuring it out, yeah. and you know, making the um, you know the laser machines that can identify this stuff. And they do find someone who uh, has is in this situation. And uh, she's an artist. Yeah. Okay. Um, Conchetta Antico. And she was born in Australia and she moved to California. And she somehow figured out that she had this condition and kind of injected herself into uh, places where they're studying this. So hopefully you can find out more. And uh, she said she would, you know, she would uh, like for everyone to realize how beautiful the world actually is then they might value it more as well. Um, so you can look up Conchetta's paintings. Um, she's an artist. Yeah. And um, she's no Jean-Michel Basquiat, I'll tell you that. Well, we'll get to that later. But the but, fact is that whatever she's painting, we're not going to see it. Because she's she's seeing something in what she's painting that we're not going to see. I know. And she's uh, they write the article as if her paintings are able to com- that's convey, a, no, I don't believe you know, that, that her yeah. her sunsets are very colorful, not because she's playing with it and uh, exaggerating, but just she's just trying to show us what she actually sees. Yeah. Um, I, you know, so I, you know, I, I couldn't tell that. Of course, the computer is not really good at uh, yeah. color and accurate um, depiction of colors, anyway. So. Um, but, you know, it's something to aspire to. You know, maybe someday we'll be able to uh, 
you know, have an operation and instead of getting your rid of your nearsightedness, you'll get those extra cones just, and you can uh, have more color in your life. I think, I, I think the colors are pretty good that I can see. Yeah. Look, I, say I be, can barely handle before them. Before we get to that point, you know, Sherman Williams, I think, has got the whole thing covered. If they, uh, they'll be the first to come out with the alternative colors. Um, all right. Headlights. I know you've been thinking about that. All right. You know, we talked about the idea that in Europe, uh, they have these wonderful headlights. They can stay... Uh, you, know, you got to improve beam. your pronunciation because I keep thinking you're talking about head lice. No, I'm not saying that head lice. That's a different story. Headlights, headlights. Uh, yeah, so they always have their brights on in Europe, and the the reason that that works is that uh, as cars they have different come, lights and they don't blind us. Yeah, because blind well, people more than that. Different yeah. lights. The, the the headlights adjust to the oncoming cars and change direction and change shape so that they won't blind the oncoming driver. Right. So the driver benefits from yes. brightness and light. And, and we talked about it before. We don't have it here right. yet because of legislation. Right. right. Let's, but they were supposed okay. to change the infrastructure So now what's bill. the latest that you have? Okay. Here's what happens. Here's, this will cause you to be even more disappointed in the, in the powers that be. So apparently in the infrastructure bill that was passed, part of it was that the standards in the U.S. would change such that they'd be more consistent with Europe and we would now be able to have these these kind of advanced headlights, which are already built into a lot of cars, but they're, uh, op- they're not operable because of the laws and the rules that now apply uh, in the U.S. So now they're going to open up this technology. And the answer is not so fast. They did pass the rule change. Uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration did uh, uh, make operative uh, certain rules with respect to the new high beams, but they declined to change a rule that was put in 1970 that limited the brightness on headlights. And they also took the view that notwithstanding whatever legislation had passed, they had the discretion to hew to 1970 standards as to the brightness of headlights, even as they filed the legislation to change the shape of the beam. The result is, as it now stands, it appears that we will not be getting the full benefit of the European headlight approach for reasons that are people are still trying to figure out why the uh, you know the National Highway Administration has taken this view, and there are people making very political politically adept statements without losing their their minds about this, saying uh, we're hoping that this works itself out. Here is uh, someone. Daniel Stern, chief editor of Driving Vision News, that's a magazine. The U.S. has left in place an ancient cap on a high beam intensity from the late 1970s. It is a, quote, regulatory island. So we'll have to see. You wouldn't think that this could possibly be screwed up, but it looks like it has been. So that is that just uh, the result of, like, lobbyists I don't or something? Know. I don't know. It could well be. It's, it's just impossible to explain. Listen, all I'm doing is read the newspaper. That's, that's the premise here. So, don't understand it. All right. So, I, I did mention uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yeah. Uh, it's an article, sort of a legal thing again. There's a lot of legal art stuff yeah. happening. And uh, so, there's an article in the New York Times, uh, I guess Wednesday, yeah. about uh, a new exhibition down at the Orlando Museum of Art that includes 25 never-before-seen Basquiat's that were, you know, have been hidden 
from sight had been lost. Right. They were in a storage locker um, and now will be on view. So uh, it's a whole complicated tale mm-hmm. um, that seems... The story is this, that... Um, well, first of all, uh, Basquiat, very popular uh, 20th century painter um, of, uh, you know, uh, what, what you might call, I mean, he began in literally in graffiti. Yeah. And so it's a very graffiti figures. style. Yes, right. And he, re- he died in uh, 1988 at the age of 27, heroin overdose, right? right? So his uh, production is limited, okay? One of his paintings sold for $110 million, Right. Uh, a couple of years After ago, there, yeah. and this is an American painter record. Right. Okay, so he it's, his works are extremely uh, valuable, fungible, whatever you want to say. Um, anyway, uh, allegedly there are these twenty five paintings that were on cardboard, that were in a storage locker, um, and uh, that were unclaimed, and uh, a storage hunter. Okay, William Force found them, uh, you know, there are people who uh, keep an eye on on these auctions of unclaimed mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, storage yeah. stuff. Right. Uh, and he and um, he managed to snag them for $15,000, right. which sounds like a lot of money um, for art that's in a storage locker, but... Uh, it's not a lot of money if it's for art guy. if it's by someone who sells painting right. who could you know his paintings sell for a hundred million dollars. Um, so anyway, the story is this that in uh, 1982, um, Basquiat is living in California and uh, he agrees to paint a series of paintings for Thad Mumford, a TV screenwriter. He worked on MASH and um, he had some money and uh, uh, theoretically he was uh, interested in, you know, he'd heard of Basquiat. He's interested in investing uh, in uh, Basquiat and he has these 25 things and uh, and somehow he he doesn't pay his um, storage fee and uh, he loses touch with the paintings. That's the so-called provenance. And uh, so the provenance is, is that there's a story that goes with it. The story is that it's legitimate because this fellow made this deal and got these Basquats, and that's why we know that these are Basquats. But, yeah, but people are have they been, really Basquats? Yeah. Are they really Basquats? And, uh, and they've been trying to sell them. They've been up for sale for a while, yeah. and no one is biting right. because there's no one, there's no official authentication. Right. Okay, the the committee that was uh, attached to the estate ha- has now given up. Yeah, uh, has closed down. Yeah. They're not authenticating anything that because a few years ago they were involved in a lawsuit right. where they said, "No, this is not Basquiat." Right. and, and uh, so uh, you know. Well, the same thing as we discussed happened in the Warhol estate. They had a, a very substantial panel or operation in terms of substantiating, not substantiating Warhols, and they got themselves in litigation and they shut down. Because if somebody buys it for $110 million, right. you know, and they've been told... And it goes to get it authenticated, and you refuse to authenticate it, they sue you. Right. Because they lost $100 For the money. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, so it's a tricky thing. Now, there are, you know, they ha- there are people who have, you know, sort of authenticated aspects of it. Right. They, they've had, uh, um, 
you know, uh, handwriting experts right. authenticate the signature. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, you know, a couple of people have weighed in and said, yes, uh, I feel these are, are real Basquiat's. Uh, but, and there's a poem that Mumford wrote about the paintings, basically, um, in an oblique sort of way, that Basquiat seems to have signed this poem that that Mumford wrote that kind of, you know, links the two of them together and celebrates, you know, mentions the work. So, you know, that's, that's, yeah, yeah, that helps. Okay. But one of the big problems is, these are all on cardboard. Yeah. And on the back of one of the pieces of cardboard, it turns out to be a piece of a FedEx box. Yeah. And there's some writing on the back of it, some printing on the back of it. And uh, it's in a typeface that experts say was not used uh, by FedEx, FedEx when, when until alive. many years yeah. after uh, Basquiat died. Well, Meanwhile, yeah. they, they are part of a an exhibition yeah. in Orlando right. at this museum. And uh, the director of the museum there, DeGroff, says he's very confident that these are real Basquiat's. And by being in this exhibition, that may um, sort yeah. of give the good housekeeping seal of approval, give some level of credibility to uh, this claim. Sure. Uh, so it, it was also interesting. The article's kind of fun because it also quotes... A lawyer who's been who's gotten involved in uh, trying to um, help out, uh, help get you know uh, authentication claimed. It's also interesting that the the lawyer involved, Pierce O'Donnell, has um, himself invested in. They've got investors in the paintings. Um, So well, that's how they're paying them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, uh, maybe we'll never know, right? But if they they, they speculate that uh, these paintings that were purchased for fifteen thousand dollars could sell for at least a uh, hundred million dollars, yeah. So that would be a good return. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's worth uh, pursuing. <laughs> and that I think they, you know, they worked out something to the mutual advantage of themselves and the museum when the museum showed it, and they gave it their imprimatur. Now, so, I will say that uh, I enjoy Basquiat quite a bit. Okay. I do like Basquiat. But uh, I'm not interested in the money aspect of, of things, though. And, uh, but you're in charge of the art here. Yeah. So uh, I, don't, I don't have a negative view. I'm just, uh, you know, I don't know. It's powerful stuff. But it does indeed have a lot of his own personal, personal social commentary. So <laughs> Great. Uh, so there is a, um, just a brief article. Because uh, we talked last week about the litigation involving the estate of Harper Lee, the author of, uh, um, uh, excuse me, uh, what, of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And that had to do with the production of the play and which was the licensed production, all that sort of thing. Well, apparently, another lawsuit has just been resolved uh, concerning the Harper Lee estate. Had to do with who's the rights to do a sequel or a redo of the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. Or a prequel. Oh, yeah, God knows. And a prequel. Yeah, prequel. Well, there was sort of a... She wrote a prequel, right? Remember all yes, the controversy she did. about she that? Did. Yeah. But in any event, uh, again, the... Uh, well, I shouldn't say again, but the Lee estate was arguing that, that uh, no one has the right to do that, only she does. It turns out that she actually negotiated a deal where she gave that away or bargained that away 
uh, when uh, she was in her 90s. And of course, that's the dispute in the lawsuit. Was she on top of things when she was 93 and made this agreement with the people who made the movie in 1962 who wanted the rights to, uh, as you say, prequel, sequel, a redo, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's, so in any event, those people do have the rights or their heirs do have the rights. Uh, but they don't really have a plan to, uh, to make a sequel. Uh, so don't panic. Uh, they said they're also want to protect the property. Uh, never say never, but, uh, they don't have a real plan to do that. But, but they want to be able to do it if they want. Yeah. But they also want to sell it. Can they sell the rights? Yes. And they want to prevent other people from doing it. So they say, well, what really interests me about this was this, uh, so I'll just ask you, do you think uh, Harper Lee liked the movie To Kill a Mockingbird or didn't? How would I know? I never talked no, to her. I, there's no way you would know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, sometimes authors are a little bit uh, sensitive about that. They think it doesn't live up to the book. Uh, in any event, I'll give you the answer. She loved it. She thought the film was tremendous. And not only that, but she thought there could only be one person in the world who could play Atticus Finch, and that was Gregory Peck. <laughs> and the reason that she so much guarded the idea of there having there being a sequel or anything like that because she didn't want to see anybody play that part but Gregory Peck. So there you go. So, you know, can't argue with that. Wait a minute. I thought you said she did sell the rights. Well, this is what she said at the time. When she was 93, she sold the rights. But uh, that's, you know, oh, that's why right. you got a lawsuit. But the fact of the matter is, generally speaking, uh, she was a huge fan of the movie and Gregory Peck. Well, who isn't? I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, you think we talk too much about litigation? No, you can't talk too much about litigation. Uh, um, anyway, so um, you know, back to art history. Yeah. You know, uh, every year when I was teaching, uh, you know, the fourteenth, um, fifteenth century uh, art, etc., always bring up the Black Death. Mm-hmm. You know, and the the effect of the bubonic plague right. uh, on art. And on life. This is prior uh, to the Renaissance, right? And on right? economics. Yeah, right. And, of course, economics affects light, uh, art and life. So, so on and so forth. Interesting little article in uh, the uh, science section of the Times this week, questioning the toll of the 1300s pandemic. Okay? Of course, we're all um, into pandemics now, you know, yeah, before. Right. Who would even mention them? Yeah. But now we're, you know... Pandemics are just, uh, you know, a much more of a household word. It's a focus. Than they yes. were for the most of right. the zillion years I was teaching. And, of course, I always stand up there and say, well, you know, it killed half the population of Europe. You cannot imagine yeah. the impact. And now people are saying, well, maybe it didn't kill half the population mm-hmm. of Europe. And uh, Oh, really? They, well, one of the ways they're – here's what's interesting about that is how they're figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And you know it was a it was an agricultural economy, mm-hmm. and so if half the people died, that means you know people were not working the fields, etc. Uh, and uh, you know um, farms were going fallow. There was no one to uh, to tend livestock, etc. And you can see all this reflected in um, the pollen that would have been released in the air. And the pollen, you know, can flutter down and sink down into the ground and last for centuries. So they're able to, you know, track changes in how and what is growing uh, by uh, analyzing the pollen. And they, you know, 
are finding that they're, you know, um, you see certain things happening in, say, Italy, and then, you know, not the same effect uh, in uh, other places. In some regions, such as central Italy, the pollen told a story of devastation. Pollen from crops like wheat dwindled. Okay, dandelions, other flowers in pasture land faded. Fast-growing trees like birch appeared, uh, you know, and also slow-growing ones like oaks. But this was not the rule across Europe. You go, you know, as specifically they mentioned actually England, uh, that uh, these kind of changes didn't register at all. So the Black Death was not as devastating as Richard It was not consistently devastating, you know. And not everybody agrees with that, they say. But, uh, you know, it is a possibility. They're also studying skeletons because, you know, you can trace... uh, um, you're now able to analyze the strains of the bacteria uh, from the uh, DNA of medieval skeletons to see what's going on and, and uh, see how that's reflected. So th- there, you know, there's a fair amount of um, uh, still controversy about it, but it uh, it seems that it was not the consistent de- devastation no. that we thought. Also, they're able they're now um, understanding there were several different strains of the bubonic plague, mm-hmm. and they're wondering how that happened, and uh, why, if there are, are variations in um, the level of uh, the pandemic spreading, how that happened. Uh, you know, was it really all about the rats coming off the ships? Uh, did some rats get off ships in, in uh, you know, in in places where the weather wasn't as good for surviving, etc.? So it's there's much to find out. Great. They're going to have to rework, write uh, uh, yeah. all those uh, art history books. That uh, Well, look, I, you know, honestly, I think they'll probably be debating how many people perished as a result of COVID 50 years from now, 70 years from now. There's, there's plenty you can debate. And, uh, well, but there's going to, they're going to have a lot more um, yes, data more tools, yes. to uh, deal with. Yes, for sure. But in, in any case, you can't, uh, one of the lessons learned is you can't just say, wow, there was this deadly thing and it consistently yeah. uh, acted in this way. Well, it's amazing yeah. they have that kind of evidence, you know. Uh, yeah, all right. Yeah, it is amazing yeah. that you can resurrect those things. All right, moving right along. Oh, no, that's it. So the, the final uh, thing we were going to talk about is uh, PJ O'Rourke died. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the Times says, conservative a satirist and political commentator. And uh, I will say that I was, I've been slightly aware of P.J. O'Rourke, but I haven't really read much P.J. O'Rourke. Um, and I, you haven't, have you? No. Okay. But he's the kind of person you're kind of aware of. And there was a lot about P.J. O'Rourke. I found five different articles uh, this week in just the, the, between the Times and the Wall Street Journal, uh, appreciations, if you will, of P.J. O'Rourke, obviously highly regarded by other journalists. Uh, as I said, conservative generally, but really... Uh, critical of politicians generally, uh, and of both parties, and depending on the particular circumstances. And, you know, a witty, mostly extremely funny guy. And it causes me to want to, to read him a little bit. He wrote a number of books. Um, but here are a couple of quotes uh, on politics. He said, quote, the Democrats are the party that says government will make you smarter, taller, richer, and remove the crabgrass on your lawn. The Republicans are the party that says government doesn't work, and then get elected and prove it. Uh, so uh, there you go. You know, that's sort of critical of both parties. Here he is on uh, 
Obama. The good news is that according to the Obama administration, the rich will pay for everything. The bad news is that according to the Obama administration, you're rich, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is a point. Uh, He did vote, by the way, for Hillary Clinton, even though he was conservative. And he had this telling comment. He said, Hillary Clinton is wrong about absolutely everything, but she's wrong within normal parameters. <laughs> uh, which I think is a fair point. And um, then, uh, you know, some of his writings here, I won't read it to you, but he writes very, very well. Uh, and he, I'll give you one final comment. Uh, in terms of people finding him controversial and and him developing enemies, he said, you know, Jesus said, love your enemies. He didn't say not to have any. So there you have it. Uh, anyway, P.J. O'Rourke seems like a really witty, clever guy, uh, kind of pithy, kind of certainly worth reading. Um, and I think I'm going to, you know, follow up on that. All right. So uh, that's it. That's all we have in this uh, third week of February. Uh, as we uh, getting little uh, sneaky indications of spring, maybe. Maybe. We'll see. So just tell me this. What? They still do the swimsuit issue? I mean, I know they don't do issues, You're putting right? me in an awkward spot. How would I know that? Uh, <laughs> you know, honestly... No, I, I'm just saying we're in that lull. We're in that lull right, so we'll, where there's let, nothing... Let there's up. no sports happening. I will happening. say. I think there's it's, really no sports happening because people can't even be sitting around the well, uh, the fire, right? right? What's it called? Yeah, hot stove league. The hot, yeah, yeah, there's no hot stove. There's no baseball. Because well, there's no baseball. Look, we had this conversation years and years ago. You would say to me, we would get Sports Illustrated every week at a time people read Sports Illustrated. And you would say, okay, what, what's going to happen now? Uh, the Super Bowl is done. And yes, look, I said that. No, I didn't say that. And, and, uh, no, here's here's the way it happened, how folks. Did it happen? <laughs> Suddenly we get a magazine, a, a porn magazine in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> along with our normal mail. And it says on it, Sports Illustrated. Yeah. But it has this, you know, completely naked woman on the front page. And, and, and many and of them the on the inside What was our pages? favorite headline? Yes. What? Wowie and Maui. Okay. And, the Wowie uh, and Maui edition. Yeah. And you explained it to me as, uh, you know, there's nothing else going on in sports. So this is what Sports Illustrated does. Yes. Now, is that a, is I, that a concept that I, still you know, honestly, applies? I, I think they still have it. I don't know how. If much you go to the Sports Illustrated website, is it just full of uh, uh, girls in bathing suits at this point? Uh, I don't go to the website, but I think it probably is. But the real question is: just, Is there a print edition of the Sports Illustrated anymore? That's the hard question. I thought there wasn't. I didn't. I don't well, know. Well, if there isn't, then uh, this I have is a no bit idea. Of an academic discussion. All right, I'm going to send you out there to do some research. But let me just stop for a second. There might be a print edition. I'm not telling you there isn't. All right, now you go to the store, go to the CVS in the yeah. magazine section and see I'll, what you can find. I'll put on a raincoat or something and slide over there and see what they've got. Uh, yeah. And you'll, you'll be wearing your mask anyway. Oh, no one will know it's you. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, All right. right. All right, I got to go. I'm on my way. I'll see you later. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. We'll see you another time.